0: So we're in First Thessalonians chapter 3, and if you were with us last week, you'll see that uh, we focused on our Christian walk. Um, Paul tells the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 2 verses 11 and 12, uh, basically, guys, we exhorted you, we comforted you, we charged every one of you, just as a father does his own children, that you, and here's the get, would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, And we looked at three divine resources last week that are available to the church to help us to walk worthy. Um, We looked at God's Word in us, God's people around us, and God's glory before us. But before you can walk, you first have to stand. Yeah, crawl, right? You first got to crawl, and then you learn to stand, unless you're my nephew Holland, who went straight from crawling to walking. Uh, it, was, it was the craziest thing. Uh, all of a sudden, one day, he he got up. That was Holland, wasn't it? Who just got up and he just like took like a, a dozen steps to to his mom. We were all shocked. We we're like, no, you just blew past the standing part. But but that's not how it normally works for Christians. You you have to be able to stand. You have to be able to stand fast in the Lord. And that's our key verse in chapter three. If you notice in verse eight, Paul says this: For now we live, if Conditional clause there. If you stand fast in the Lord. That phrase, stand fast, it means to preserve. It means to persist. It means to stand firm. It means to keep your standing. And the implication is that there are forces at work against you to prevent you from standing. Let me illustrate this with a true story. Brenda and I uh, used to own an RV and uh, RVs are like boats. The happiest day in a man's life is the day he buys his boat or RV and the day he sells his boat and RV, um, but we used to have an RV, and, and one, one time we got away alone without the kids. We, we invited another couple to go with us. We were going up the coast. We we're going up uh, Pacific Coast Highway, and, uh, and we were up near the area of Big Sur, I think it was, and, um, and the it was during the wintertime, and so the, the rain had sent in, it began to storm, and the wind was blowing, and Brenda was nervous about continuing. Um, and uh, you know, because if you've been there, you know that, that the road's pretty narrow, there's, there's all of these bridges, gorgeous bridges built back in the 20s or 30s, you know, and, and all, but it, it, it's a pretty narrow strip, and they have, they're prone to, to rock slides and landslides, you know, so Brenda's worried about this stuff. So I, so we stop for dinner, and I ask our waitress. I go, well, let's ask a local. So I asked the waitress. I'm like, hey, uh, would you, we're, we're, you know, we're driving up you know, the, the coast here. Would you recommend in this weather that we continue? And she looks at me with this look of terror. She says, are you driving that huge old RV that's out in the parking lot? And, and, and I said, yeah. And she's like, well, I wouldn't do it. And so she leaves, and I look at Brenda. I'm like, well, what does she know? You know, (laughs) if you've met me, I'm a foot-to-the-floor kind of guy. Let's just go, you know. So Brenda, um, she acquiesces. She doesn't want to, and so she does what she normally does when she's, you know, fearful. Uh, She decided she was going to change into her jammies because if she's going to her death, she at least wants to be comfortable (laughs) going to her death. So she goes in the back, and she's changing into her pajamas. Well, we're going. And we're, we're, we are on one of these narrow bridges. And the gal that's, that's with us, she, she and her husband, she, looking out the window, sees a split second before I do, rock! There is a Volkswagen-sized boulder that has fallen down, blocking the road. We cannot get past. I slam on the brakes, very narrowly missing this rock. Well, my wife, because of the centrifugal force, comes back. Bursting through the door, rolling down the aisle of the RV. And I'll just put it this way she only got half her pajamas on before she comes forward. She wasn't really happy with her husband at this point. Now, what happened? Brenda had three forces working against her, preventing her from standing. She had the force of gravity, she had the force of centrifugal force, and she had her idiot husband behind the wheel who set everything in to motion. And um, the story serves as an illustration for us because the same thing is true, the same dynamic is true in our Christian walk. That there are forces working against you to prevent you from standing. And behind all those forces is that idiot Satan who desires to kill and to steal and to destroy. And so we're going to look today at three ministries that Paul performed to help the Thessalonians stand, and they're instruction, instructive for us, as always. We've titled our, our series, Hopeful Living, and there are instructions here for us. And so the three ministries that Paul performed are ministries that we ourselves can perform, and there are ministries that are performed within the body of Christ. So we're going to look at the fact that Paul sent a helper. Secondly, Paul wrote a letter, and thirdly, Paul prayed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, Paul says, when we could no longer endure it, We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this for in fact we told you. Before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. Paul says, therefore, and what he's doing here is he's transitioning from the statement that he made back in verse 18 of chapter 2, where he indicated that, hey, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. And so basically, understand that the last thing Satan wants you to do is to stand firm. And right now, what the Thessalonians are enduring is what Paul warned them against. He said, listen, we are facing hardships, we are facing persecution such that we actually have to leave town because it's so incredible, and we want to take the heat off you a bit, but you know, the thing is, is that you're going to be persecuted. Paul had warned them about this, and the fact is, is that Satan persecutes you. How many of you is a big duh from from that statement right now? You're like, duh, Pastor Ted, I get it. Some of you being persecuted by Satan even right this moment, and you know the, the afflictions that you're enduring. See, the thing is, is that Satan attacks the churches, and it happens both on an individual level, and it happens on a corporate level. Because as the church, yes, we are the church corporately together, all together, but the church is comprised of you individually as well. And so individually, the moment that you become a Christian, you become a marked man, you become a marked woman. It's like that far side cartoon with the two deer standing there and the one's got the bullseye uh, that's all big on his chest and his buddy says, that's a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. You know, And, and you've got that birthmark as a child of God. So you come to God, you end up on Satan's radar and so you go to pray... And all of a sudden your kids melt down. They start crying or the phone rings or miraculously you remember a hundred things that you've got to do, right? That all there strategically to get you away from prayer, right? Uh, it, it's kind of like, it's been described this way. Prayer has been described as, as uh, you know, you got two guys in an alley and all of a sudden one of the guys produces a knife. All of a sudden now all the attention goes on getting the knife, Right, prayer is that weapon that we yield that uh, that that Satan attacks. Right, uh, individually you get attacked when you come to church. I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you on the way to church got attacked. Some of you at home, before you came to church, you got attacked. Your kids get sick, uh, your car won't start, uh, you get into a huge knockdown, drag-out fight with your wife, right? I mean, this kind of stuff happens. You, You go to a marriage retreat, same thing. This is why, by the way, when we do a marriage retreat, we started off by calling a timeout right up front and saying, all right, let's deal with the enemy's attack. And, and some of y'all, you're not even speaking to each other right now because you got into a fight on your way here. And so let's just stop and let's deal with that. We have to recognize that for what it is. It's spiritual warfare. It's attack that comes against us. It also comes against us corporately. And we could name a million things, but Satan attacks both from the inside and from the outside. Inside the church, fights, divisions, quarrels, right? Uh, interpersonal conflict. Satan's at work trying to, to pit us against each other. Outside, we, we face people that are persecuting us for our faith. I think of Nehemiah when he was called to build, rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and what he, he, he experiences, Sambalat and Tobiah coming against him, against the work that God wants to do. Well, Satan's behind all of that and Satan's behind the attacks that you and I go through. So first of all, understand this is totally normal. Totally normal. The apostle Paul, uh, Peter In 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad uh, with exceeding joy, if you are reproached for the name of Christ. And that's not if maybe you will be, if maybe you won't be, it's if then and you will be. Uh, When you're reproached, is the idea. For uh, the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus said a similar thing in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you persecution is a normal thing. Paul understands this. He's warned the Thessalonians about this before he split. And now as a loving pastor, he wants to go back to them. He wants to minister to them because here's his concern. As a pastor, he's saying, this... this." little church here it's a brand new church it's a tender plant you know you plant a little brand new tree and what do you do you put a couple of poles next to it and you strap that tree to those poles why because it's going to be buffeted and attacked by winds and so on and you want it to stand firm and Paul wants to be those supporting poles as it were to this, this church but Satan has hindered him so what does Paul do he does the next best thing and this is our first point if you take a notes, you can write it down Paul sent a helper sent to help her. What Paul says is this, he says to these guys, look, you're being attacked, just like we are being attacked, just as the churches around you are being attacked, and I don't want your new faith to be shaken, so I sent Timothy to you to strengthen you in your faith. Now understand, when it comes to standing firm in our faith and walking in Jesus Christ, the fact of the matter is, is that we need help. We all need help. You need help. I need help. No man is an island. We have a tendency, especially men, to isolate, right? And the fact is, we need a helper. Paul said this to the Colossian church. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There's a dynamic there. He's saying, look, you got to have a connected interpersonal relationship with other people and it's got to be a relationship where there's instruction and where there's admonition. And this kind of relationship is absolutely vital. It's one that we need. And he emphasizes, look, one Another, connectedness. Writing to the Hebrews, he uses the same phrase. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on to say to them, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says we've got to consider one another. We've looked at that before as a church, right? It means to look intently at and we welcome that in theory. But in practice, it can be difficult because when somebody looks at your life intently in the way that the Bible prescribes, it will also include exhortation. It may include a word of rebuke. It may include a word of encouragement, which we love encouragement. That's my number one love language. I love encouraging words. But the rebuke and the exhortation, not always so much. Right? And what it can cause us to do is get biblical all of a sudden and we say to the person, hey, Jesus said look at the log in your own eye before you go looking at the speck in somebody else's eye. But what Paul is saying here is not that dynamic of judgment. It's the dynamic of, hey, I'm going to be there as a helper for you. And you're going to be there as a helper for me. And we're going to encourage each other. And sometimes encouragement means we say the difficult things to each other. And we don't let that drive us out of the church. That's why Paul adds quickly, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Because sometimes what can happen is that we experience something less than what we would like. And we go, I'm leaving. I'm out of the church. And it's like, no, that's the last place you need to be. It's the first place Satan wants you to be. And so Paul sends a helper to them. Right? Understand, Christianity was never intended to be lived in isolation. And the Christian church is never about you doing it alone. And listen, it's not about one man doing the ministry either. See, we see here that it's all about community. And when I say community, let me define my terms because what I'm not talking about is programs and entertainment and, you know, that, that kind of community. Uh, I'm talking about the whole body working together. Turn over to the left. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see this picture. This is a, a beautiful picture of, of what we're supposed to be as a church. Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now he emphasizes oneness. There's one body, one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul's saying, look, you're in this together and you're one. And you each individually play a role in that connected oneness of helping each other. He goes on to say this in verse 11. He says, he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. For what? For the equipping of, write your name in there, the saints. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying, $10 Christian word just simply means to build up the body of Christ. In other words, what what Paul is saying here is, look, the church, yeah, it has some key people that are in some key positions, but you are also a key person in a key position. You're part of the body, and you're you have a role to help to build other people up. Till, what? Verse 13 says, we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, what? Speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom? The whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, again, write your name next to that because you have something to supply, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, you can just put an arrow to that as well with your name next to it, causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building up of itself in love. And so here's the idea. We need each other. Paul sent a helper. We need a helper to help us in our Christian walk, and we need to be helpers for other people. Brenda and I, years ago, we, raising our kids by God's grace, they all know the Lord, they're all walking with the Lord. And, and, and the Bible says this, Paul said it, and, 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 or actually the Apostle John, I think, said this, but, I, but, but man, I, I have the same sentiment. I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. But we had a season there with our oldest, Megan, and it was a difficult season. And um, Brenda and I, just, we, we couldn't get through to her. You know, sometimes a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And so what we did was strategically we reached out to, to a friend of ours, the wife of, of one of our staff pastors. And, and we called her up, and, uh, and we said, listen, uh, Darcy, right now, uh, Megan's in a difficult place, and she's not receiving from us, and we were hoping you could take her to coffee and that you could minister to her. And so Darcy did, did just that. She, she scheduled coffee with Megan. She took her out, and, and she, she ministered to her, And my daughter came home a changed woman. Like, it was crazy. She came home and she's like, you'll never believe the things that Darcy told me. She told me this, and she told me this, and Brenda and I are going, we told you all the same things. We thought that, we didn't say that, right? Because why? She, she would receive it from her. See, that's an example of how there, there are the, the helping that happens. Here at Reliance Church, listen, we've got a, a lot of trusted companions and fellow workers that are that are part of the growth and the edification of the church. We've got pastors and we've got elders and we have deacons and we have ministry leaders and we have Bible study teachers and, and so on. And, and all of these are, are, are men and women that, that we have, have drawn upon to say, listen, I can't be there, but I can entrust this to you. See, when this church was small, when we were first starting out, I did all the weddings. I did all the funerals. I did all the hospital visitation. I did all, you know, the Bible studies and, and all of these things. But you add a couple thousand people to the mix, and it's like I, I couldn't be there even if I wanted to be in all the places. And here's the secret the guys that are doing our counseling and stuff, they do a better job than I ever did anyway. They're trusted helpers, and we need helpers. We need to be those people that, that are stepping out and doing all these things. So Paul says there in verse 2 that he sent Timothy, and I want you to notice three things that uniquely qualified Timothy to be this helper. Three things. He was a brother in the Lord, he was minister of God, and he was a fellow laborer. Let's break this down. Number one, he was a brother in the Lord. See, when Brenda and I sent Megan to talk to somebody, the first qualification was that they were going to give her the counsel of God's word. We sent her to a sister who was in the Lord. We, our qualification wasn't, oh, this person's cool, she'll listen to this person. You know, oh, they don't know the Lord, but hey, even a broken clock is right a couple of times a day, and so likely we could, no. We found a believer, right, that we could send her to. And so Timothy was a brother in the Lord. You can't give what you ain't got. Second thing, he was a minister of God. Now, you hear the word minister, and automatically you think pastor, right? Now, in Timothy's case, he was a pastor, but that's not the word that Paul uses here. In the Greek, that word minister, it simply means servant. It's one who serves. That (coughs) Timothy went out with just a heart to help just to serve, right? John Maxwell, he tells the story of his first pastorate, a small church that he pastored. It was in the South, and one of the members of the church was just kind of known notoriously in the community as a hothead. Uh, he, He was not a believer, and so yet he would come to church because his wife was a faithful believer and so John in one of the first messages he ever preached might have been his first message he's in this church knows this guy's reputation preaches the gospel gives an invitation the guy comes forward and gives his life to Christ and so as he retells the story John kind of pridefully he's like so what did I say that persuaded you to give your heart to the Lord and the guy said pastor frankly there's nothing you said that caused me to give my heart to the Lord. My wife has been ministering to me and so patient with me and so long-suffering with me. Frankly, I was just waiting for you to shut up so I could go forward and give my life to the Lord. Helper, minister, willing, available. See, that's the idea. Thirdly, Timothy was was a fellow laborer. Paul emphasizes this point. Here's the idea. Timothy was willing to work as a member of the team. In other words, he wasn't going out trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't going out trying to, you know, make merchandise of the people and bring them to him. Let me give you an example of of what Timothy was not, biblically. If you were with us when we went through 2 Samuel, we met a guy named Absalom. And, Absalom, he was the son of King David, but he had no interest in supporting the ministry that God had entrusted to David. He wanted to make a name for himself and he wanted to make merchandise to the people. Here's how the story goes, 2 Samuel chapter 15, I'll put this on the screen for you, basically encapsulates the whole get of who this guy was. It says, now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Understand what he's doing. He wants everybody to perceive him as being this great, awesome person. So what this is, is this is a carefully crafted image campaign so that he presents himself as this great leader. Because he's got an ulterior motive. Verse 2, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? See, here's the deal. Those that were sanctioned leaders... In David's administration, in David's ministry that God had entrusted to David, they would be there at the city gate and they were entrusted to care for the people. Absalom would position himself on the way to the gate, so that people would encounter him first. And what would he do? He drew people to himself. As the people came, he'd call out to them, hey, what city are you? And the guy would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then, listen, Absalom would say to him, oh, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. He's undermining his dad's ministry, right? Oh, they're, they, don't, they just don't care about you, man. Nobody's around to help you right? Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, and then every man who has any suit or case could come to me, and I would give him justice. You know what the definition of a wolf is? A wolf is someone who eats sheep, right? Satisfies his hunger by eating the sheep. That's not the role of a shepherd. shepherd feeds sheep. He doesn't, feed, he doesn't feed upon them, right? And so this is what he's doing. And so he says, oh, that somebody would appoint me judge. I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and he would take hold of him and he would, <coughs> he would kiss him, buttering him up. Oh, you're awesome kind of thing. And in this manner, the Bible makes it clear. This is God's commentary on Absalom. Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, Timothy was none of those things. That's not his heart. Timothy's not looking to make a name for himself. He's not looking to build his empire. He's simply satisfied to work as a fellow laborer in the gospel. One of the things that we do here at Reliance Church, and we've done it from the very early days, we haven't had a midweek service. I'm not saying we never will, but we haven't had one, and and there's a couple of main reasons why we did not start a midweek service. Number one, we just didn't have a facility to do something midweek when we were first starting out, but secondly, I did strategically wanted people to meet in smaller groups, why? Because I've discovered from my personal growth in the Lord that it, my, my spiritual growth was, was on steroids when we met in a small group. We would establish these, these connected relationships. We were going through the Word. It was a dialogue where I could ask questions. And it was a connectivity that happened with a group of people to where there was a, a real shepherding that was taking place. And listen, when God adds daily to the church such as should be saved, those kind of relationships are critical to where there is that helping and that coming alongside and that encouraging and that establishing of those interpersonal relationships that are so very important. People that, that you, you, you know and they know you and you do life with and, and all of these things. But do you know... When you establish home Bible studies, it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of risk in establishing home Bible studies. The work part is, you know, you got to vet these teachers, make sure that they're not teaching heresy, right? And uh, what, he's teaching the Book of Mormon? Are you kidding me? Like, what are we? No, so you got to make sure that they know the Word, that they're teaching the Word. you got to make sure that they've got a shepherd's heart. You know, some people, they're like, oh, man, I love to preach. Yeah, but do you love the people you're preaching to? That's the, that's the question. Right? So it's a lot of work to find those people, who's going to host it, and all of this stuff. And you know, every home Bible study is a potential church split. Because if you got an Absalom in there who says, look, I'm not, I'm not here as part of a team of what God is doing in this body of believers. I'm a wolf who's got a hunger. I, I, I just love to teach, and I'm looking for people that are going to feed me. See, it's, a, it's an important thing when we endeavor to be those that, that help that we have the heart of a Timothy. The point of application for us is that God is seeking helpers with a heart to minister to people. And I'm asking, is that you? Is that you? Because I want you to hear what Jesus said. Jesus, Matthew's gospel tells us about him, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them... Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Hear this part. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I want you to note, as a fellow laborer, Timothy with a heart to go, Paul has this heart. He wants Timothy to do two things. Take note of this, it's important. He wants them, number one, to, to, wants Timothy to establish the Thessalonians, and secondly, he wants to encourage them. To establish them and to encourage them. Now listen, both of those things are necessary. Both are necessary, that believers, new believers, would be established and also that they would be encouraged. But you have to make sure that they are first established. That takes the priority. Why? Because if you do not focus on making sure they're well established and you instead go to encouragement, you could be encouraging somebody in a direct path that is ultimately destructive to their Christian walk. This is, by the way, what's wrong in the church these days. You know, people during the Christmas time, they say, let's put the Christ back in Christmas. Hey, let's start with putting Christ back in, in Christian right? I mean, we need Jesus Christ here. So the thing is, is that sometimes we can encourage people when they, they don't need to be encouraged in what they're doing. They need to be exhorted. They need maybe rebuke. They need some correction. What? Hey, listen, you're not established in the faith. And I would I would love to give you some encouragement because you're experiencing some train wreck right now in your life. But as I look at your life, man, some of the train wreck you're experiencing, you're bringing upon yourself because you're not established in the word, you're established in the world. See, so critically important, Paul says, I want you to establish them, I want you to encourage them, and they need to understand that the trials and the hardships that they're going through, man, these are things that, that are normal, but I want you to help them understand too that the trials that they're going through, listen, They're trials that the enemy wants to train wreck them, wants them to get off course. Because here's what Satan does. When he attacks you, um, he will either attack you, you know, in your own mind or in your own actions, tempting you to sin, or he he tempts somebody else to sin against you. And then what happens is he piles on and now he starts messing with your head and starts telling you, maybe this Christianity stuff isn't all that it's cut out to be. Maybe you can't trust God in this area of your life. Maybe you need to take control of your life in this this particular area because God's not providing, so maybe you need to provide for yourself. Abraham, you know what? God promised you a son but he ain't moving quick enough. So why don't you listen to your wife? She said, hey, why don't you, you know, shack up with Hagar and and we'll have a son with her and and you can do that. And his wife being tempted by the Lord, let's not trust in God's way, let's engineer our own way. And Abraham being a man says, well, okay, we'll do that, you know. And so the thing is, is that the enemy works in this way. And so, hey, you got to be established and then you got to be encouraged. So Paul sent to help her. Secondly, I want you to note, Paul wrote a letter. This is our second point of application, verse, uh, verse 5. Back in First Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> Paul says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, <clears throat> excuse me, he's talking about, uh, you know, that they're going through persecution, that his heart is for them, and I, I, I just want to make sure that they're okay, and, and Satan's hindering me, so I can't get there. And so for this reason, when we could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come back to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in The Lord. See, here's the deal. What Paul explains to them is this. He says, look, I was worried about you. So I sent Timothy. I sent Timothy to establish you. I sent him to encourage you. And now Timothy has come back. And Timothy has given me a good report that you're walking in faith and love, and that you have a good remembrance of us. That phrase, good remembrance, is important. It, it, it means basically that they had respect for Paul as their pastor. See, when, when the enemy is attacking the church of Thessalonica, one of the things that he was doing is he was stirring up people <clears throat> that were going to the Thessalonians and basically talking smack about their pastor, Pastor Paul and telling them all kinds of bad things. And so this is a concern that Paul has because he's like, man, it would be as if somebody was telling your kids that you as their mom, you as their dad, that you didn't really love them, that you had an ulterior motive or that you really wanted the worst for them or whatever it was. And you would say, I want my kids to know that I love them, that I care about them. And so Timothy comes back and he says, hey, listen, they have a good remembrance of you. In other words, they, they, they're not listening to all this stuff. They're saying, that's, that's not my spiritual dad. That's not who I know Paul to be. We're not, we, we're not believing your lies. But as well, that phrase, good remembrance, it always is used in the New Testament in connotation with prayer. And the idea is, not only do they think well of you, Paul, they're praying for you. They pray for you all the time. And so what happens here, he sends them these two letters, and we see kind of the the reference to it in verse 8. He says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. He's he's not only reciting, hey, this was my concern, and this is what I did that I sent Timothy to you, but now he's giving them further instruction, and he's going to go on through the rest of this epistle in 1 Thessalonians, and again in his second letter to them, 2 Thessalonians, he's going on to encourage them right now some letters that Paul wrote to some churches have been lost to time we see references to other letters that aren't included in our Bibles in some of the epistles Um, and so we know that some of the letters that he wrote were lost to time but these were not these are preserved why are they preserved because they're the word of God and that's important see here's the thing Understand, yes, the Bible was written by men. I I had, you know, a fire captain I used to try and witness to, and his response would be, as I would quote quote scripture, he would say, well, you know who wrote that, right? And I would say, well, you're going to say men wrote it, right? Yep, that's exactly right. And that's why I discount it, because it's just the word of men. It's not the word of men. It was inspired and authored by God himself. See, listen to what the apostle Peter said. He said, know this first of all, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, here's the key, moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. In other words, God exerted his supernatural influence over the writers of the Bible. Paul said this to Timothy. He said, all Scripture is given, not by the inspiration of men, it's given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And you go, well, that's a convenient claim for a man who wrote it to say that that's inspired by God, right? But here's the difference. We have proof that God's Word is authoritative and reliable. There's 66 books inside your Bible. They were written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three languages on three continents. And yet, not one book contradicts another one. The writers maintain complete historical, moral, prophetical, and theological accuracy throughout the scriptures. They write in harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation. And in the process, listen, they wrote, <clears throat> among other things, several hundred prophecies. These are things that were written hundreds of years in advance describing very detailed events. When Jesus would enter Jerusalem, that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that he would suffer and die and be buried and rise again from the dead. Over 300 prophecies alone written about the first coming of Jesus Christ, and all of them fulfilled with 100% accuracy. Listen, mathematically, that's an impossibility. The number, that those 300 prophecies, that, that if, it were to, if we were to say, well, that's just random chance, they got lucky. If you did the math on that, you would find that the number of zeros in the mathematical prophecy, uh, probability of 300 prophecies coming true by random chance is a bigger number than the number of molecules in the entire universe. It's an impossible number. If only, I think the number is like 16 or 17 of the prophecies that were given of the 300, if they only got 16 or 17 of them right... That number is so large that the equivalent is if you filled Texas, the entire state, three feet deep with silver dollars, painted one of them red, blindfolded somebody, had them pull one of the silver dollars out, and it happened to be the red one by random chance. That's the number if only 16 prophecies came true. Over 300 came true. Listen, the Bible is true. It is the inspired word of God. And I don't want you to miss the point. Here's the point. What did Paul do to disciple these guys? What was the ministry that he performed? He didn't only send them a helper, but he wrote them a letter. The letter he wrote them is scripture. When you're gonna help somebody, God's word is where the power is. God's word is where the help is. There's a way that seems right to a man, the Bible says, but in the end, it's the way of death. See, nothing you can do can help somebody as much as sending them, helping them, in the word of God. You want to grow in your faith and your maturity. You want to help somebody else grow. Make sure that your instruction is in God's word. So three ministries that he performed. Number one, he sent a helper. Number two, he wrote a letter. Thirdly, finally, Paul prayed. Paul prayed. Notice in verse nine, he says, for what thanks can we render to God for you For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your faiths and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Listen, I want you to see that Paul prayed specifically for four things for these believers. Number one, he prayed that their faith would be perfected. That's where we're going to camp out. I'll come right back to that. He prayed, secondly, that God would make a way for him to come to them again. Thirdly, he prayed that their love would abound. Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. And nothing destroys love more than attack and hardship and, and spiritual persecution. And Paul's like, I don't want you to go through all the attacks of the enemy and then turn in on each other and start biting and devouring each other. I want you to love one another. I want you to have an abounding love, which is the symbol that you're a disciple of God. And fourthly, he, he prayed that they would live holy lives that they would live out their faith in demonstrated application that, that you could go man look at that the spirit of God rests on these people just as the testimony came from the believers on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem and as they, they did all of the things in response to their loving God it says that the whole, the whole community looked on and they saw this now when Paul prayed that their faith would be perfected in verse 10, that, that word perfected, it means literally to adjust, to equip, and to furnish. And the same word is translated in Mark's gospel, in Mark 119, as mending nets. See, the idea, you might think when Paul says, I'm praying that your faith is per- perfected, that, that you might think Paul is praying for them that they might have a perfect faith, right? That they would get to the place to where your faith is perfect. No, the idea is that it's being perfected, right? Here's the idea. The idea, mending nets, the idea is that your faith is something that you exercise and it's something that you grow in and it's something that never stops. It's a path that happens and it's a progression that happens. You see, all of us, <clears throat> We're physical beings living in a physical world. We worship a spiritual God and we exercise, our, we exercise our faith in the spirit realm. But our flesh wars against that because our flesh wants everything to be worked out. I want to go with what I can trust with my own eyes. That's the way I'm wired. That's the way you're wired. And we fight against that. The, the, Paul said to the Hebrews, it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those that diligently seek him. That that, that phrase, diligently seek him, or or translated in the New Living Translation, sincerely seek him, it's a Greek Greek verb. Uh, It's uh, exeteo. And, and the idea of it being a verb, verb is something that has action to it, right? It's to search out, to seek for, to beg, or to crave. The idea is that it's defined by action. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm, I'm praying for you that your faith will increase, and the action of your faith is also exercised in prayer. And, and, and it's this idea of, well, Paul said to the Romans, Romans 1.17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's your life. That's my life. So what happens is you're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through times of trial in your life. They're not, they're not crazy unexpected. Sometimes they are crazy unexpected, but they're to be expected. It's normal. You're normal. If you're breathing and and you got a pulse, if you can fog a mirror, you are going to experience persecution. You're going to go through it. And like I said, the enemy's going to try and pile on and get you to doubt and go, man, if God really loves me, why would he allow me to go through this? All of these things, listen, work out your faith. Learn to trust the Lord. And when your conscience or when your thought process or when your... your, um, Conscious is the wrong word. When 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 you're when you're the way you can you know do the math in your head and the way you can see tells you to go in a direction that's contrary to God's word. Faith says, trust God's word. Because that's the compass in the fog of life. That you go, you know what? I know that if I do this, if I just continue to pray through this trial, hey, God's going to use this trial. Isn't that what what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8? In all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. God's doing a work. It's bigger than the situation and circumstance that you're in. Well, we've looked at three ministries that Paul performed, right? He sent a helper, he wrote a letter, he prayed. I want you to note in conclusion that Jesus performed these same three things for us. Jesus sent us a helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. He said to his disciples, I'll not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He said to his disciples, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. God has sent you a helper. God wrote you a letter. It's the word of God. And, and he, has, he has given that to you. He sent you that letter just as Paul sent this letter to, to his disciples in Thessalonica and he prayed for us. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane said to the Father, I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but you, that you should keep them from the evil one. I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his apostles. But also for those who will believe. You can write your name right in there. Who Those who will believe in me through their Word, Jesus sent us a helper. He wrote us a letter. He prayed for us. Three questions as we close today. Question number one. What are the things in your life that hinder you from standing in your faith? What are those things that hinder you from standing in your faith? Question number two. Regarding helpers in the Christian walk. First part. Who are the people that you look to for spiritual help? And secondly, how can you actively Help others. Don't just blow by that. Take a walk with it. Who are the people that you look to for spiritual help? Because here's the thing. A lot of us, most of the men in this room for sure, we live isolated lives. We We don't let others in. And God hasn't designed the church that way. And we need others. We need helpers. And so who is it that you look to for spiritual help? And as well, the actively helping part, look, we are busy people. We got lots going on. There's a lot of work to be done, not just here inside the church, and there is. But in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, how can you help others, spiritually speaking? Third question, final question. How can you more effectively pray for others and how can they pray for you? Again, don't just blow by this question. Because here's the thing. I'll have people come up to me frequently. They'll say, hey, Pastor Ted, how can I pray for you? And, you know, sometimes that question can catch you flat-footed because you're like, well, how much time do you got? <laughs> you know? But, it, but here's the thing. I, I actually, no pun intended, but I prayed about this. I reflected on this. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the most important thing I can ask people for? For me, it's wisdom. If people say, hey, how can I pray for you? I say, pray that the Lord gives me wisdom. You know, you look at King Solomon. Here God had entrusted him at a very young age with, 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 a, with a kingdom to, to rule. And, and what did he do? He prayed for wisdom. He's like, if I'm gonna care for these people, God, I need wisdom from you. And so, so you, you have to decide for yourself, man, what are those areas? How, can, how can, can I others, when they come to me, hey, and by the way, I get people that come to me. I had a father come to me with his kids with him, and he said, me and my kids pray for you every night. I almost started crying. That's the the most beautiful thing anybody can ever say to me. I'm praying for you. I need all the prayer you can get. And we need to to have that kind of life where you're praying for others and where, where they're praying for you.